0: All right, good morning. Uh, This morning, we're going to continue our series of Fellowship Divine, God's Blueprint for Otherworldly Joy. And today is the Fellowship's Antithesis. So last week, we looked at the basics of the Fellowship. We talked about the Trinity. We talked about how our faith is both subjective and objective. So we have historical proof to base our faith on. But we also have this personal relationship with God that no other religion in the world can offer a person. We talked about the purpose that we have in our relationship with Christ and how that determines our fellowship. So if we're accomplishing that purpose, if we are fostering a relationship um, with Jesus, encouraging it, investing in it, walking with the Holy spirit, then we are in the light. We are in fellowship with him. And even though, We as humans can have that fellowship through the blood of Christ. We still, of course, do make mistakes. We sin uh, because we have the flesh. So though we've been born again and regenerated, we often have to confess our sins. And when we do, he's faithful and just to forgive us. And as we are walking in the light, we are becoming progressively more and more like him. And that's actually something we talked about on Friday. Paul in 2 Corinthians 3 said that when we behold the Lord with open face, We are changed according to that image. And so as we behold Christ in our life and we're walking in the light, we're going to reflect more of that to other people. And so today we're going to look at the opposite of the light. We're going to look at the darkness, what that means and how it affects us. So John, he's known for what you would call um, dualism. So you have the light and the dark. Um, You have knowing God and not being known. You have a truth, be truth. So he divides it up in a way that's really easy to remember, or at least it should be. And so today we're going to talk about what that darkness is and how we can avoid it. So in first John chapter two, starting in verse number one, we're going to read the first two verses and we'll talk about them. So verse one is my little children. These things write I unto you that ye sin not, and if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Those are some really, really good verses, probably my two favorite out of this whole passage that we're looking at today, and we're going to look at uh, verses 1 through 11 today. But our first point, if you have your notes in front of you, our first point is our help. So the first point of this passage, the message that we need to get today is concerning our help. And our help, of course, is Christ as our advocate and our advantage. And so going back to verse number one, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So writing this to these people, he does acknowledge them as little children. So they are his children according to the faith. Paul, he spoke of Timothy in a similar way. In 1 Corinthians, Paul talked about begetting the Corinthians um, according to their faith. And so even though they were begotten by the Holy Spirit, Paul facilitated their faith by presenting the gospel to them. Faith cometh by hearing the word of God. And so in a similar way, John is referring to this congregation as his spiritual children. And he's saying that I'm writing these things to you so that you don't sin, However, in the next breath, he says, If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. So that implies that, of course, even though we're not to sin as believers, we sometimes do. And when we do, we have an advocate. In fact, at the very end of chapter 1, just reminding us of what we already looked at, in verse 10 it says, If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So John doesn't want people to take that as an an excuse to just go on sinning without repentance. So that's why in verse one of our passage, he says, I'm writing these things to you so you don't sin. However, when you do sin, I don't want you to be spiritually defeated. And so we need to be reminded that Jesus is our help in two ways. He's our advocate and he's our advantage. So as our advocate, Jesus is the one who stands before God, the father on our behalf. And because of Jesus's righteousness, we are accepted. So again, it says in verse one, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So we're not righteous. He's righteous in our place. So there's a a, a difference of opinion, I guess, among commentators, exactly what's being referred to here. There are a couple different ways one can look at it. Uh, One might say that verse one and verse two are really stressing our justification. So because we are justified, we are forgiven. Christ is our advocate. Or rather, vice versa, we are justified and forgiven because he is our advocate. Um, However, he is writing this epistle to Christians. And so it could be that instead of just focusing on justification and being saved, he's taking this a little bit further to involve our sanctification. So Jesus doesn't just act as our advocate to make sure that we're saved. He acts as our advocate to also make sure that we are becoming more and more like him, becoming more and more alike um, his example of holiness and righteousness. And again, that's what chapter one uh, included when we talked about that last week, how walking in the light means we're progressively becoming more and more like Christ. So not only is Christ our advocate, meaning I'm assured that even if I'm not righteous, even if I sin, Jesus stands in my place. So I can rely on that. I can always depend on when I mess up in that moment. I didn't just become unsaved again. It's not like a switch. It's okay. I, I sin. Okay. Switches down. Okay. But he's unsaved in that moment. If, if he was to die in that moment, he wouldn't go to heaven. Of course, that's false. John is assuring us here that even when we sin, Jesus stands as our advocate. So that's a great assurance that we all need to remind ourselves of. And there's a lot of spiritual defeat among people who are in church because they don't understand that basic idea. But of course, the second thing is, not only is Jesus the one who makes sure we're saved, but he he gives us this advantage. I mean, we have access to the Father. Well, I touched on this last week too. As priests of God, the priesthood of the believer, we have access directly to God. Uh, We have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. And Jesus will give us strength from his position of authority and power. And so at the right hand of the father, not only is he bringing us to the father, but all the power of God that Jesus has, that has been committed to him, all authority, all power in heaven and on earth. He is able to use that power to help us. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. Um... The book of Hebrews really has this as a a main theme that Jesus is able to reach down and pull us up in terms of our walk with Him. So, not only are we justified by Christ as our advocate, but He also gives us this advantage. Anytime I'm going through a hard time, anytime I'm facing an obstacle, I can go to Jesus and I have that advantage. Unbelievers don't have that advantage until, of course, they believe in you know, they have access to it. But even as believers, we can miss out on that advantage. If we're not praying, if we're not seeking God's face in his word, then we are missing out on the advantage. Now, of course, the truth is God is our father. And even when we are not serving him, I do believe that he treats us differently than he does unbelievers. Um, So he's going to be patient with us in a way that he's not with people who are not part of his family. But it's also true using this family analogy that even though I'm going to help my kids and be patient with my kids, even if they're not obeying me, if they do obey me, if they're going along with the plan, if they're going along with with their purpose, which as a kid, it's to, to honor their parents, they are going to receive more joy, more benefits, more of an advantage in their life because they're fulfilling that purpose that they have. And so God's always going to fulfill his purpose, which is to be a good father to us. But of course we know and our relationships with our kids, sometimes we give to them what they need, but they don't reciprocate. They're not accepting that. (laughs) And so we need to remind ourselves that God, through Jesus, his son, has all of these spiritual advantages that he wants to give us, but we as children need to humbly submit to him. So Jesus is our advocate. We're saved because of him, but he's also our advantage, uh, our strength, and our wisdom. Nana, you were talking about those verses from Proverbs, Proverbs 3, 5 through 6, some of my favorite verses in the Bible. I have a Bible at home that I got those verses written in it by you, and it's precious to me. And that's promising that if we acknowledge God, then he will direct our paths. So, of course, God is going to shelter us and protect us as his children eternally. But if we want to be delivered from the power of sin in our lives and to have the abundant life that he promises, I came to give them life and life abundant. If we want to have that abundant life, then we have to take advantage of what we've been given. I always tell my students when I'm teaching high schoolers that you have this smartphone you carry around all day and it gives you a great advantage in communication. You have information at your fingertips. And there are lots of apps and lots of things you can use with it. But imagine if someone gave you a brand new iPhone. I don't even know how many iPhones they have now. But let's say you got a brand new iPhone and that thing costs like $3,000 or however much it costs. And you set that on the shelf. It's your iPhone. I mean, it was given to you. You accepted it. But if you put it on the shelf, then you're getting nothing out of it. I mean, you have literally thousands of dollars of worth of, of advantages at your fingertips. But you're not taking those things and implementing them in your life. It's the same thing with eternal life. We can have eternal life, but we can put it on a shelf. The biblical language for this would be quenching the Spirit, grieving the Spirit. And so the converse is be filled with the Spirit. Abide in Christ. You have Christ. John talks about how you receive Christ through faith, believing. John 3.16. But now that you have Christ, you have to abide in him. So that way you can get all the advantages from this new relationship you have. Uh, Of course, verse 2 reminds the readers that this relationship is not just for them. Jesus is the propitiation for us, for our sins, but he's also the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. This is a verse that Calvinists really have a hard time explaining because Paul's saying, us believers, he paid for our sins, but he also paid for people who are not part of us. So they're not part of the family, but yet he's already paid for their sins. Some people, I think, take this too far. I, I know some people who I very much respect that believe that Jesus has literally and finally take away, taken away all sins from all people by the cross, and that their problem no longer is sin. Their problem is that they're, they're spiritually dead, and they have to you know, simply be born again through faith. So these people think that whenever the unbeliever stands before God one day at the final judgment, they will not be condemned based on their sins, And I have a hard time understanding that. It's a very, what would you say, uh, maybe a fine-tuned view. Uh, At first, it may not seem like there's anything wrong with it, but I do believe that people that stand before God, unbelievers that stand before Him one day, they are condemned based on their sin. Exactly, and, and that and to them, they would argue that what that's saying is the works are brought up only to illustrate that we can't save ourselves. So the people who might stand before God and say, hey, I deserve to get in because I've been good enough, the works will simply show, no, you haven't met the qualifications. Um, no, there's, there's not a lot of people who believe um, this particular view that I'm sharing with you, but it's something that I came upon as I was studying this week, and again, I don't think it's... Uh, Heretical view necessarily. Uh, These people do believe in eternal security. They do believe in grace. They do believe um, in what we believe about salvation. It's just they think that Jesus, He took away the sins of the world in a very um, literal sense. And I believe that whenever Jesus, or rather John, because it is John in chapter one, when He says, This is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, I think that that shouldn't be taken as, um, what would you say, an actual fulfillment apart from faith. I think that that's talking about something that is potentially done when you believe. Does that make sense? So I think he's saying that he basically, he paid for everybody. Okay. Um, he, cause he did, he absolutely did, but you got to cash the check. Okay. And that's basically what I believe that the checks in your hand. Okay. If you accept it, I mean, that money becomes actually yours and your debts paid. Um, Yes, well, and they and they would and they would say that too. Like these people, they do believe that you have to have faith. Okay, so they're not universalist. Okay, the people that I'm referring to, they just think that basically when Jesus paid, there was no second step involved. There wasn't an okay. Uh, Jesus paid, and now I have to accept it to become actual. They don't believe that. They think Jesus just paid, and it's already paid, and you have to do something. But what you have to do is believe and thus be born again, they would say that being born again is a life-death issue, not a forgiven, condemned issue. And I personally think that while there's a distinction between those two, you can't draw a hard line between them. Yeah, and so uh, if you're not following this distinction as I'm talking about it and you're listening to us, um, basically what I'm saying is Jesus paid for everybody, absolutely everybody. And so there's this gift wrapped up called eternal life, Forgiveness of sin, being born again, being justified, lots of different terms to refer to salvation in general. And he offers this to everyone. So he can, I can, as a believer, go to anybody and say, Jesus bought this for you. It's yours. However, you have to accept it. Okay. Now, if you accept it, you can, as a Christian, like we said, you can put that gift on a shelf. You can kind of compartmentalize it and say, okay, well, I know this to be true, but I kind of like this sinful habit that I have. And you feel bad because you're doing that sinful habit, but you want it and you want it more than you want to do things God's way. And that's a struggle that we as Christians have. But what I'm talking about is once you receive that gift and you open it, it does become yours. Okay, It's like at Christmas time, again, going back to the iPhone analogy, if someone opens up that iPhone and says, thank you, and they accept it, it is theirs. Okay, Now, if they don't use it and take advantage of it like they should, well, that's dumb. They shouldn't do that. But it is theirs now. Yes, so in, uh, uh, in 1 John 2, verse 2, when he says he's the propitiation for all, he is the satisfaction. Jesus has made everybody savable. Everybody is savable now, okay? Apart from Jesus's work on the cross, nobody would be savable. But what makes us actually saved? We're saved by grace through faith. So if someone doesn't have faith, then they don't have the salvation gift it's wrapped up it's waiting there and as long as they can draw breath in their body as long as they have life they can reach out and accept that and there's a there's a period there you don't know how long you have in this world and so that's why if you're listening to this and you know that that gift is wrapped up for you accept it now and don't wait because you have no idea how long you got in this world of course once you do accept it jesus is your advocate and you don't need to question that afterwards. We often, because of our guilt and our self-consciousness, we do, but we go back to verse one to remind ourselves, once we accept this propitiation, once we accept this gift, it becomes actually ours and Jesus is our advocate. So uh, our first point, again, just stating that once more, uh, Jesus is our help. He's our advocate and he is our advantage. Um, Now let's look at verses three through six. Got a little bit of a slur here. That coffee's getting to me. Uh, Verse three, and hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments he that saith i know him and keepeth not his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him but whoso keepeth his word in him verily is the love of god perfected hereby know we that we are in him he that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk even as he walked now verses 3 through 6 they bring up a lot of questions uh, especially verse 3 hereby We do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. A lot of people are going to take that. And I mean, a lot of people are going to take that to mean you determine whether or not you're saved by keeping the commandments. If you're not keeping the commandments, then you're not saved. And of course the question is how much do you have to keep it? Because John says right here, we sin. Okay. If you say that you're without sin, you're a liar. So you're not always keeping the commandments. So, How much do I got to keep before I'm assured? Well, some people might say consistently keep the commandments, but what is consistent? Okay. How do I know that I'm consistently keeping the commandments? Can I sin three times a day, six times a day, 10 times a day? You don't know. There's no criteria. So I think this is really devastating to someone's assurance of salvation if they take it that way. And I don't think that's what John is intending. He's talking to believers here. He's not asking them to question their salvation. He calls them little children, which indicates they're born again people. So what is he saying here? Knowing God is, it's sort of like um, a spectrum. Let's, Let's look at it this way. When you first believe in Jesus, you do know God on a level that the unbelievers don't. You have to because you believe the truth about him and he's pleased with that. You're now in his favor. He's commanded you to change your mind to repent. You have. So now he gives you that gift of salvation. You're born again and you will be eternally known by God, meaning he will approve of you eternally because you have accepted this gift. Now, of course, the basis of our being known by God is not our works, because if it was, We would never be able to know God sufficiently in our lives to be saved. So, us being known by God is based on not our own righteousness, but on Jesus Christ, who is called here the righteous, in verse 1. So, If you read in certain places in the New Testament, even the Old Testament, knowledge has that meaning. Uh, Jesus in his high high priestly prayer in John 17, he talks about this, uh, to know you and to know the one that you've sent, which is Jesus himself, to know God, you have eternal life. So believing in Jesus does result in that knowledge. Knowledge is basically defined as being in the sphere of God's favor. Does God favor me? Does he look upon me with favor? Now, in a justification sense, yes, he does look upon me with favor. I know I'm absolutely accepted. No sense can separate me from the love of God because of my faith in Jesus. So that's one type of knowledge here. But is that where we should stay? Should we, should we stay and be content with, okay, God knows me sufficiently for me to be born again. He knows me sufficiently to be justified. So I'm going to stay right there. There's something in us now that we're saved that wants us to grow deeper in our knowledge of God. Of course, there's a constant struggle between what our sin nature wants and what our new nature in Christ wants. But this relationship we have with God now comes with this desire to know God deeper, to be drawn further into this relationship with him. And so knowing God, knowing God is not limited to having a relationship with him. Knowing God is having fellowship with him. And so we have to keep things in context. So we had a whole series on Hebrews and Hebrews talked a lot about faith, right? But the faith that was being referred to in Hebrews 11 was living faith, mature faith, perfected faith. And by the way, that's the same sort of language employed here in verse five. It says, whoso keepeth his word in him verily is the love of God, what? Perfected. So this is talking about maturity. Yes, God knows you because you're his child. You've been washed clean. In 1 John 3, I want to read this to you. And uh, that's my son, by the way, if y'all hear him in the background. He's preaching his own little sermon over there. Uh, In 1 John 3, 9, it says, Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Now, how is it that John can say in chapter 1, If you say you're without sin, you're a liar. And he's speaking to born-again people. And then in chapter 3, he says, a person who's born again not only doesn't sin, but cannot sin. He's talking about our new nature. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, when it says, anyone who's in Christ is a new creation. All the old has passed away. Behold, all things are new. That's referring to the spirit of, That has been regenerated and born again. So if I was to die now, my spirit is clean in the eyes of God. I'm forgiven. My real nature now, my identity is a child of God. It's not dependent on what I do. It's dependent on Christ's promise now that I've believed it and accepted it. And I believed it for the first time when I was six years old. And that's all that God wanted for me at that moment was simply to accept his gift. But now that I am his child, he expects more from me. Not for my salvation, but he expects more for me to know him. I mean, I know my Nana now a lot more than I did when I was six years old because I've invested in that relationship and we've had fellowship. And when I come over here and I visit with Nana and I spend time with Nana, my wife, I know her now a lot more than I did when we first started dating. And so the relationship begins. And yes, on some level, when the relationship commences, you know, God, you know, I, From the very earliest age, I knew Nana, okay? When I first started dating my wife, I knew her, had a relationship with her, okay? Back then, social media was, you know, pretty basic. I don't know if they had a place where you could say, I'm in a relationship with somebody uh, like you do now. But if there was social media back then, I could say, I'm in a relationship with Katie Merrill at the time. What's that? You could be Facebook official, you know, but I had that relationship, but I'm growing even more at day by day in fellowship with my loved ones, with all of y'all. And so knowing here is talking about fellowship, not relationship. So how do you grow in fellowship with somebody? Well, when it comes with God, it's keeping his commandments. He's your father. Okay. And as your father, he has authority to tell you what to do, especially since he saved you from your sins. And these commandments are not burdensome. They're very simple. Love God and love one another. I mean, how much more concise and simple can you get? Doing those things helps you develop a stronger relationship, which is going to enrich your life. And that's why the whole purpose of this book was written. I write these things so that your joy may be full. He says that in verse four. I don't write these things to make sure that you're saved. I write these things so that your joy may be full. If you want to know God, you have to keep his commandments. And only through knowing God can your joy be full. That is the point of the Apostle John here. And so number two, the second point is this passage tells us of our occupation. So number two is our occupation, commandments and communion. And those two are linked. Okay. And we think of commandments again, this is not law. But this is similar to a relationship between the parents and the children. My kids, they have commandments that we give them. We tell them what to do and what not to do because we know what's best for them even if they don't realize it, and we want their joy to be full. We want I don't tell them to do these things because they're my slaves, okay? That would be law. Okay, but I'm not a judge. Okay? I, I'm not a police officer. I'm a father, and the relationship is entirely different. So For me and my kids, it's do these things because it is the right thing to do. Do these things because you will find joy in them. Do these things because it will please God. And in having a good relationship with Him, you yourself will have joy. So that's the whole reason why we tell our kids to do things and to not do other things because we know what's beneficial and we know what's destructive. And so our occupation is to continue. Enjoying the love of God. Isn't that so amazing and liberating to think that our occupation is to love God and to experience his love in a deeper way. And the only way that can happen is by keeping his commandments. He's like, listen, there's a manual. There's an instruction manual. And it's a simple one. The commandment that he's about to reveal is as simple as loving your brother, loving one another. But when we do this, we're fulfilling that purpose that God's given us. And we find ourselves satisfied in him. And not only are we satisfied in him, but we are also productive. We're bringing other people to a knowledge of the truth, or at least we're exposing them to the light of truth and righteousness. That of course happens in church. That happens at home with your family, with your household. It happens with strangers that you meet at the farmer's market. (laughs) And so this is meant to, of course, spiral outward to affect other relationships, but it all starts with us and God. It's not okay. I got to, I got to think about all this external obligation to fulfill here. It's not about that. It's about this new nature that I have. God loved me. I recognize that love. I'm so thankful that he saved me and I want to know him better because what I know about him so far is really encouraging. Okay. It's really exciting. I'm enthusiastic about learning more. And he says, if you want to learn more, you got to walk closer to me and to walk closer to me, you have to keep my commandments. All right, so number two, again, is our occupation, commandments, and communion. And the last one is our warning. In verse 7, we'll begin reading there. Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment, which you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard from the beginning. Old here means they're familiar with it. Okay, he's probably writing to Gentiles. It's possible there were some Jews. Um, I personally think that he was writing to Gentiles. Uh, John's letters seem to be um, a lot more broad then Peter's letter, for example, or his two letters, they're written to the Jews who were in dispersion. James writes to the Jews who were in dispersion. Here he's just writing to a congregation, which I assume was predominantly Gentile. But he's saying, this is a commandment that you heard from the beginning, from the beginning of your faith. So whenever you first got saved, you were instructed. It's like Christianity 101, love God and love one another. It's the most basic thing ever. So he's saying it's, it's not new. You know this. But then in verse 8, he says something that's kind of confusing. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past and the true light now shineth. Now it's like, how does he say it's old and then new? And this puzzled me, guys. I'm not going to lie. I I read this again and again and again and again. And at that point, I was like, there's got to be someone smarter than me that has come up with a way to explain this. And I read a really good uh, explanation of this verse by... Uh, I think it's uh, is it Thomas Constable. I believe it's Thomas Constable. On our website, we've got his commentary uh, link there. You can check it out. But anyways, in his commentary, he mentioned that the key to understanding this is what it means when he says in verse eight, "The true light now shineth, the darkness is past. He's talking about the incarnation. In chapter one, it talks about how Jesus is the Word of life, the life was manifested. And so everything's new now, okay? The old dispensation, God revealed himself, but not in the same way he has now, because God took on flesh and he appeared. And so you say, this is actually a new commandment because it's freshly given when you consider history and you consider the plan of redemption. You look at the dispensations and the covenants. Everything is new now because of Christ and his incarnation. This commandment to love one another, to love your neighbor was given in the law. It was given in the book of Leviticus. I mean, it's exactly there as it was taught by Jesus, but now it's new. It's fresh because the one who gave this commandment was God in the flesh walking in our midst. And so we talked about this on Friday, how there's a difference between Mount Sinai and Mount Hermon, how, when we think of the Old Testament, there's this veil separating God and his people and the New Testament, the veils removed. So that's, what's so exciting that John's saying is this is all new and fresh in a way. Sure. You know that you're supposed to love one another. I mean, even if you were a Jew in this audience, you could say, well, yeah, we were taught Leviticus before we heard about Jesus before he even appeared. Like we knew about that law, but it's all new now because there's a freshness associated with Christ doing something new that he never did in history. Jesus appeared in Theophanies and Christophanies, but it wasn't until the New Testament that God became personal in a way he hadn't before. And that was veiled in flesh, walking in our midst as a brother, taking on flesh and blood to being one of us. And so that's what it means that this is a new commandment. It's a fresh commandment. Now, it says in verse number 10, he that loveth his brother abideth in the light and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. So if you're doing that, if you're loving your brother, okay, and obviously loving the world too because Jesus is not just the propitiation for our sins, but as verse two says, the sins of the whole world. So if we are loving first and foremost, the church, okay, our own family, I mean, how can you love people outside your family You can't even love your family? It's a principle that uh, Paul talks about when pastors are to take care of their congregation. How can you take care of your congregation when you can't take care of your own household. How can we love the lost if we're not even loving ourselves, like the body of Christ, the church? And so he's saying, love your brother. That should extend to the lost. And if you're doing that, you're abiding in the light. You're doing exactly what God's called you to do. And as you're abiding in the light, what are you experiencing? A deeper knowledge of God, a closer walk with God. And your joy, therefore, will be full. That that joy could come directly from God. I believe that God, through the Holy Spirit, directly gives us refreshment, through prayer, through Bible reading. No one can be in the room. It's just me and God and I'm blessed. But he also gives us that joy, not just through the Holy Spirit's direction, through the word of God, through prayer. He gives us that joy through each other. Like this is a highlight of my week, guys, coming here and meeting with y'all. And so that joy is included as well. But in verse 11, this is the warning. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness and walketh in darkness. And by the way, it says his brother, his brother, This is believers we're talking about. A Christian, a brother who hates his brother, is in darkness and walketh in darkness and knoweth not whither he goeth, because that darkness hath blinded his eyes. So what is the consequence? Well, we could talk about this and have a whole lesson discussing the consequences of God's discipline, because there are lots of different ways that he does this, but we're not going to go into that right now. I think we need to stick with the main theme of the book, and that is that your joy may be full. So if you're walking in darkness and you're blinded to the truth of God, to the love of God, to the joy that he wants to give you as his child, then what will you experience? Disappointment. And so number three, our warning relates to darkness and disappointment. If you are walking in darkness and deceiving yourself, thinking you're going to find joy, you're going to find satisfaction outside of God's plan for you, outside of the church, outside of this family, this program that he set up, the bride of Christ. If you think you can find satisfaction outside of that, you're wrong. You're blinded. And a lot of people are blind. I mean, how many believers have we known and we've talked to that they live in some form of sin and they persist in that and they think that that's going to give them more joy rather than being where God wants them. And they may deny that, but that's what they must think or else they wouldn't be doing it. They're doing this because they think it will bring more satisfaction, more meaning, more fulfillment to their life than doing things God's way. And they're blinded in thinking that. They are deceived. And our our goal as Christians, when it comes to brothers living in sin or sisters living in sin is to simply say, if you think you're going to find joy in that, you're wrong. You're blinded. You're blinded by your sin into thinking that your sin will satisfy you, but you have been designed new now, okay? In a sense, <laughs> um, we have been we have been reconfigured to where sin will not give us the satisfaction it once did. Because we're made in God's image, I think that even unbelievers at times are like, man, I need, I need something more. And that's often a way that God will draw them to Jesus to accept him as their savior. But now as Christians, we're different than we were before. Now we have a new nature. So do you think we're going to be satisfied with anything outside of that? We're not. Our flesh will deceive us into thinking we will be, but we won't. And that's why I can remember, again, this this principal conversation I had with my mom. Um, I remember her when she had one of those sober moments. She's back home. And uh, I don't know what it was that I said, but she brought up how when she was living in sin, when she was off with another guy or she was drinking, she said that um, she was miserable miserable the whole time. And she knew that it was wrong and she knew that Jesus deserved more and she knew this wasn't going to satisfy her. And I'm like, then why'd you do it? And I can't remember exactly what she said, but I think that it, it goes along with what we're looking at here. She was blinded in the moment. Sin is very convincing and very deceptive. And of course, we're not just dealing with our sin nature, are we? We have a demonic enemy as well. And when you have the world against you and you have your sin nature against you and you have the devil manipulating the world and manipulating your nature or or encouraging it and uh, influencing it in the way that they can, if you're dealing with that, it's going to be really hard in that moment to see the truth. But what did Jesus say? The truth shall set you free. And so that's why we have to surround ourselves with this. Believers have to be around each other as much as they can. They have to be in the word as much as they can because they have an enemy and they have the flesh that's going to try to interfere with who they are now. And so this new nature that we have is like a bank account. Am I investing in this bank account? Am I putting money, spiritual funds? Am I putting that in my new nature so it's stronger and it's becoming perfected, the love of God being perfected in me? Or am I investing in this other nature, which is competing Right? It's competing with the other one. And so this is the duality that John really focuses on in his writings. Um, believers in one sense, because we're born again, we can't sin. When When I sin in a sense, in one way, it's not even me. Now, let me explain what I mean there. I did make a choice as a whole person I chose, but the real me will never be satisfied with sin. There's always part of me that when I do sin, I'm like, that's messed up. I shouldn't have done that. That's wrong. I need to confess that. I need to stop doing that. What is that in me that's saying there's something wrong with that? It's that new nature. And that's what Paul talked about in Romans 7. You know, I do what I don't want to do and what I don't want to do, I do. You know, that, that constant struggle. And so what do we have to do? We have to feed the Holy Spirit. And um, once we uh, come to a pause in our series of 1 John, we may not finish the whole series. I do want to, if it's not on Sunday, I don't know exactly when it'll be. But I do want to do a study on the Holy Spirit. Because I think we need to look at practical ways to strengthen our, our new nature in Christ. How do we work out spiritually? Not legalism okay? It's not ceremony. It's not a lot of things to be done. But what are some ways that we can practically apply this truth? Because it's easy to say, well, be closer to God. Be closer to the Holy Spirit. Read your Bible. But exactly, specifically, what's some more stuff that we can do? And so if you're listening, stay tuned because eventually we're going to get into that and talk about how we can strengthen our relationship with the Holy Spirit. But we really need to wrap this up because the kids are falling apart. So we hope this was a blessing to you, and uh, we'll see you next time.